Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Hi, this is Abby Artemisia from The Wander School. Thanks for listening to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft today. This is episode seven, and I am super excited to be talking to Kelly Moody today, who does a really fantastic project, and I'm not going to even try to tell you about it because I want her to tell us all about it. And if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. Leave us some comments. And if you would like to support this work and the production costs, you can do that on patreon.com backslash the wander school. And you'll get all kinds of cool bonuses like extras from these podcasts. Hi, Kelly. Hi. How are you today? Pretty good. I came in, I'm in Northern California right now, and I just came in from harvesting acorns. It's like valley oaks and black oaks. And yeah, it's been, it's been sweet and such a great day. And it's wonderful to be harvesting a bunch of wild food and then get on here to talk to you about wild food. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited and so jealous. (laughs) I, yeah, it's been a while, but I used to live out in Northern California and I do miss it. Yeah, those madrone berries too, still hanging on. Oh, wow. I have never harvested madrone berries. Well, it's a big year for them. Well, not to get out of order here, but what do madrone berries taste like? Um, they, they're they kind of neutral, but a little sweet. Mm. And they're really succulent, and they feel like really hearty when you eat them. And a lot of people string them up and make necklaces and stuff. Oh, wow. That's so cool. It's such a special tree. It's, I think, the first tree I ever saw the first time I got into California. And it just kind of blew my mind because if you've never seen Madrone, it's just, it's got like this orange bark, but then it has the outer bark peels off like sycamore trees, right? And so is manzanita, which is another food, wild food out here that is like has a more sweet sugary berry so like the madrones to me feel really like hearty like meal like you know but a lot of people just like harvest them for decoration because they're so vibrantly red and they string them up and you know you're like this where there's so many you get a bunch to eat and then you get a bunch to make necklaces and stuff so nice yeah well we'll have to research more about that (laughs) 
Okay, so tell me about ground shots and everything that you do. All right, well, uh, yeah, so, man, how do I even begin? Like, we were just talking about before <laughs> this, like, it's a good practice for me to speak about my project um, and be able to kind of tie it all together. So I guess first, I've been blogging for a while and I haven't done it a lot in the past five months so much, but just like blogging in my travels and it kind of started with the blog and I called it of sedge and salt and it's the website is still of sedge and salt. And so a lot of it has um, photo diaries of like where I am in the world. Cause I'm pretty nomad. I've been pretty nomadic for the past five years. So you know, different places that I have gone and explored and like plants are usually interwoven in that in some way or the ecology, their history of the area. So that's like an element of my project. And then I started writing like these sort of ethnobotanical plant profiles after a while of like, you know, going around the country and seeing say cottonwood, for example, in a lot of different locations and taking pictures of them and like trying to like just observing them in different environments of course this is like ongoing because I keep learning more the more that I visit new locations or go back to the same location and um, compiling like the the information the observations and the research and the photographs sort of in these pieces so I started doing that a while ago that concept of ground shots as like its own project, which is still kind of interwoven with this log that I've been keeping for a long time, came to me when I did a wilderness solo a few years ago with an organization called Signal Fire, which I like shout out on my podcast all the time because they're a really wonderful like organization that like unites like artists and ecologists and environmental folks and activism all together. And they take people out into the wild and, they give you prompts to respond to issues on the land with in, like in a creative way. And so I did this thing a couple of years ago and I just finished another session with them this past fall and they did a three day solo and I had actually never done that. And in that solo, it came to me like, um, cause I did a lot of like sitting in the same spot all day and looking at the same rock or, area and I thought like there's something to like what something to learning about looking at something deeply in one small space but there's also something to looking at the bigger picture and like my life has been so much about like really like traversing across different ecologies and and really seeing how they're interwoven so it made me think about like how can I play between these two ideas of like something that's a snapshot, a ground shot, like a capturing a moment of a time and place that's really just like one jewel in a spider web, you know, and then also being conscious of the spider web that connects everything. So for me, the idea of ground shots has been about how can I explore that in multiple ways and really with the land as the focus. So, um, you know, the plant profiles are one way, these sort of like photo diaries that I've done on my blog is another way. And then I started the podcast that I now run. Uh, I guess it's been almost a year and it wasn't this past spring, but the spring before. So a year and a half, a year and three fourths or something like that. Because I kept also meeting so many interesting people traveling that I kept thinking, man, their story is so... <laughs> 
cool and I really would love to share you know and I grew up in a small town in the south so like for me I was just constantly getting my mind blown by different people's stories and and I'm because I'm a plant person like an herbalist and like uh, I end up meeting like people who are engaged with the land in different ways you know too so I get drawn to these people who've been doing things you know in one way maybe totally different than how I thought about something or done something so I I just started to feel compelled to like um, document more stories and and in the web of interconnection because like the podcast isn't just about herbalism or just about like plant medicine it's also about like craft and doing things with your hands and philosophy and like I have a degree in philosophy so just like all of that ideas you know the way the ideas are connected but still with the theme of the land underneath it all in some way even if I find some distant way that it is and I think there's something I'm really like excited about it being like something I'm doing over time and something emerging from that you know uh, like you know again being from the rural south and like growing up in a really particular kind of culture and political uh, climate and then like then finding myself in San Francisco around like a bunch of really liberal people and I'm like it's just interesting for me to also think about ways to like bridge people who think they're just so different from each other through like the land as a commonality so I think that's like a secret mission I have maybe it's not so secret but it's like <laughs> undercurrent and all too is like how can we get people to like maybe think they're not a different perspective so i guess that's the gist of it that's yeah. pretty amazing and there's some beautiful imagery in there I and guess I I make some medicine too on the road here and there but it's kind of hard to like and i sell it a little bit but like it's really not my main focus but um gotcha yeah well as a fellow traveler i get it and i do also love the stories that come out of that travel and all the people that you meet that are doing these things that we do and that no one knows about. Mm -hmm. So thanks for bringing that out to the world. So let's get into foraging. How did you get into foraging? I guess I did it a little bit growing up, but not like a whole lot. I don't know. I'm trying to think of, because I grew up with, like, a family of people who were really into plants and stuff. Mm, lucky we, you. <laughs> didn't, like, go out and collect things together or anything, though. But I think I remember at one point before I ever even went to Asheville, which is definitely a place where I stepped it up. Um, I lived in New Hampshire, and I started getting into foraging when I was working on an organic farm. And we were, like, pulling all these weeds up every day. And... I was like, what are these plants? Like, there's gotta be something you can do with these. And I ended up meeting this herbalist. I lived in Southern New Hampshire at the time and I went to Vermont for like a wild foods festival that they, that was being held in a tiny town wow. in Putney. And there was a woman there who was like selling nettles and chickweed and all this stuff. Like, <laughs> And I was like, what? Like blown away because I was seeing these things not the nettles as much, but like the chickweed and uh, docks and different things in the garden beds. And we were just like, the farm I was working on, they weren't like even 
they were like, oh, we got to get rid of all these plants. They just didn't care about those weeds at all. So it kind of was an aha moment uh, mm-hmm. when I went to that Wild Foods Festival because I was just curious and and then seeing the woman with all the, the, the herbs, you know. And then I ended up doing a little apprenticeship with that woman that summer. Really simple, kind of like Rosemary Gladstar, like sort of style. Mm-hmm. Florida, like apprenticeship and so that whole summer we were Rebecca Golden is her name and um it was near Brattleboro Vermont and we like went out and we would bake things out of wild it was like a it was basically a wild foods apprenticeship but we also did some stuff like herbal medicine stuff too I think that was probably the aha time I mean I think because I was harvesting acorns today and I remember thinking like when was the first time I did this and I remember doing it in my hometown at one point in Virginia and making a acorn bread with my grandma's old sourdough bowl and I would like use her bowl to like uh, make sourdough bread and so I kind of mixed the sourdough starter with a bunch of acorn meal and I'm like I can't quite but it was probably maybe around that time when I would come home to visit or maybe it was right before that I'm not sure but and after that time with Rebecca after that I was just always looking like and learning and like thinking about how to eat anything that was around me that I could so yeah so why do you think you continue to forage in wildcraft why is it important to you well uh it feels good you know like it feels fulfilling mm-hmm. to realize that the food that that you don't have to go to the grocery store to buy food and that it's that what you need it could be found all around you and in, in different parts of the country or the world that it could be any time of the year like california where i am right now like you can forage all winter it's crazy and really the greens start coming up as soon as the first rains fall it's almost like spring starts in like October. Right. Like, and um, it feels, I mean, because I'm living a sort of nomadic life right now, which is very different than like uh, other lives that I've lived. It feels good whether I'm in one place all year and like participating in like the cycle of that one place and like what wild foods are available right there. Or, and when I'm on the road, I like, um, it's a way for me to connect in the place where I am. And I know that there's like sensitivity when it comes to being a nomad, like you can't watch a stand necessarily in the same way that you can if you lived in the same place. But and some things are just so abundant that it's, it's like, you know, like acorns are just like the, the trees want you to harvest them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, so for me, yeah, the connection to, the landscape we were talking today my, my sweetie and I about the flavors of the land like how wine is like right flavor of the land you know like the air and the soil and all these things and I think like some um other wild foods are kind of like that too and some wild foods really reflect that more than others and it just makes me feel happy too you know if I'm not doing that I'm inside all the time I start to feel kind of like do I even know what's going on in the land on the land where I am definitely so, I definitely understand that. I get super cranky if I'm not outside and foraging enough. And yeah, that idea you were talking about with wine, they call it terroir. Um, 
Yeah. And I, I do think about that a lot too. And I think that there's different tastes for sure of the same species from place to place. And um, even, you know, from tree to tree. So it's super interesting. So I'm curious, what would be your definition of ethical foraging? That's a good question. Cause I feel like I hear a lot of talk about that uh, right now and different parts of the country that have spent time that that conversation is happening in a different way. And I did an internship at the United Plant Savers. Uh, I don't know, it's 2011, I think their golden seal sanctuary in Southeast mm -hmm. Ohio. So I'm yeah. really fortunate that some of my first like official, like more internship -y type herbal training was like with this idea of, um, thinking about plant populations and the bigger effect that we have on plant populations. But, but they didn't necessarily tell us not to harvest things. They just showed us how to do it in a way that didn't harm the populations, you know, because, and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about because a lot, there's a lot of conversations being had in the West, especially, I feel like more than I've saw, I've seen in Appalachia because it's so, everything's so abundant in Appalachia. Like everything's mm -hmm. covered practically in food and medicine. So it feels crazy to think about like this idea of not wildcrafting at all, which is actually a conversation that I've been seeing a lot in the West. Oh, really? Really, yeah, like this reaction, this sort of, because you know, you think about something like a place like Los Angeles where it's kind of cool now to wildcraft and like it's a super capitalist stronghold, you know, and it's like Hollywood and like, things are like being commodified like instantly all the time. And, and then people are going out to the desert, which is a place that, you know, plants need a lot. It's like tougher for plants to survive. And the stands are more particular, you know, like maybe not as strong or, you know, the ground is not necessarily covered from head to toe in green, you know, and right. you have conversations like about like herbs, like white sage where, yeah people are harvesting bundles and then selling them for like $50 a bundle in some LA. It's like, yeah, I guess, yeah, we should probably, we shouldn't really be, we should just garden. We should just grow that white sage in our own little personal gardens, you know, and leave the wild stands. So there's, mm -hmm. I think it's the converse. It just depends on the plant, you know, but um, I don't really, there's, I've been hearing a lot of extreme like perspectives on like that. If, if you're a settler or something like a person, from a European ancestry that you should like be way more cautious about wildcrafting. That's like what's being talked about in the West, you know, and, uh, but I also have been encountering a lot and a lot of this big generalization that's being made is kind of without really considering that like humans are supposed to be to like engaging with wild plants. And it also asked me to define, like, asked me to think about the question of defining what is wild, too, because everyone has a different definition for that. But mm, this is just point. something I've been thinking about a lot, so it's kind of a long-winded answer. Some plants are, like, more thrive from more engagement, you know, and you actually can increase their populations. So, um, so I think ethical wildcrafting really depends, for me, really depends on the plant and depends on the time of year and it depends on like uh and i don't necessarily think like 
you know, I don't know, there's not really a rule I have for like, you only take a seventh or this kind of thing, because it really, to me, it's just like, depends. Like my sweetie does a lot of root digging and I know we were going to talk about a, maybe a specific wild food at some point in this conversation, but like a lot of these roots, you maybe kill the plant when you harvest it. Like Yampa is one that we've been seeing around, a lot around here, but he mm-hmm. spends three times as much time harvesting seed from the Yampa. And then wherever he goes, he plants the seed wherever he thinks it's going to grow, you know, and yeah. today they like, dug some to try this particular species that's here. And because he's mainly worked with the ones in Nevada and Colorado and then Oregon. And then here it's like a whole different species. We're like, let's try it. And then when we tried it, we killed the plant, but then we planted literally a hundred seeds in the, in the hole, like that we dug. Mm-hmm. So like, well, what is ethical wild crafting? I think, you know, some people say, Oh, you can't dig anything. Well, like maybe that Yampa like needs tending like that. I mean, that's, there's like, in California especially, there's a lot of literature and, like, a living knowledge of the indigenous, like, traditions of doing that. It's a big question. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's such a good point. Thanks for saying that. I feel like um, reseeding is not talked about very much. And when it comes to sustainability and ethical foraging, and it's definitely something I try to do here in Appalachia, you know, when I see the seeds of black cohosh and blue cohosh, I will spread them as much as I can. And I totally believe what you were saying that some plants really need our interaction and it really helps them to spread Mm -hmm. or to spread more. So such a good point. So yeah, what I am excited about the favorite plant that you picked for today to talk about. So what is that plant? It was hard to pick because like, you know, depending on where I've lived at different times, like I kind of have a favorite thing in that place. You know, I think when I was in North Carolina, I really loved the hickory nuts mm-hmm. and black walnuts. And you can find the uh, hickory not so much out west, but definitely... Um, planted pecans and planted black walnuts and then there is a california walnut but that's not the one i was gonna mention (laughs) i think lately it's been the pinion pine because the past few years i have made a point i I really love nevada and i've like spent um a lot of time just like traveling across nevada and like stopping and camping in these interesting places and I'm always discovering something new every time I travel across Nevada and I started to just really appreciate that landscape that people would often see as like desolate mm-hmm. or without anything there but it's actually like so amazing what's actually there and um, a few years ago I was traveling across Nevada and just like camped pulled in somewhere to camp and then woke up and next the next morning to like this smell of like pine pitch and then noticed there was pine nuts all over the ground. I was like, like, wait, I didn't even know at the time, like if what, that this was even pinion pine that I was around. Like I just, it was a new, the first time I'd really like engaged that uh, uh, eco zone, the juniper pinion forest or whatever. And um, I was like, oh my God. And then, then like spent the next three days, like, harvesting pine nuts and I didn't really know like what I was doing but like they were all over the ground and I was like cracking them open I was like well they're good so 
okay. <laughs> like, and, and I haven't done it every year since. This is the third year I've done it now, but the heart, the pinion pine, the pine nut harvest. And oh, you can, you can technically eat any pine nut of any pine. Oh, cool. Or pine nuts or whatever. I mean, I, be- I believe that you can eat like the nuts of like other like spruce and things like that, other genuses in the pine family. But the pines, like a few different species make really nice big nuts. <laughs> and the pinion pine is like one that it makes a decent sized nut that the shell is also like fragile enough that you can crack them with your teeth. There's other pine species in the West with pretty big pine nuts like gray pine or foothill pine. Um, but you have to like kind of crack them with rocks or like a, it's like fire a tree that likes fire more, you know, uh, and so like also their shells maybe like respond to that or whatever. And, um, but pinion pine nut, it's just so much, there's a lot of protein in pine nuts and I love the landscape that they, that the pinion pines live in. I mean, it's Nevada, I guess it's the Great Basin Desert, which is, I don't know if it's technically in Southwest, I guess it's kind of its own thing you know once you get into southern nevada you're more technically in the southwest and then there's the single needle pinion that is in nevada and then the two needle pinion is more further south but they they come together um they like cross over each other in a few places and and i was just in colorado too where the two needle pinion is and they're like slightly different smaller nuts i can get really geeky about this but (laughs) Yeah, we were just talking about possibly doing a little snippet at the end after this recording and then posting it for yeah. patrons on Patreon. And so if you want to get geeky about pine nuts, <laughs> then get on to patreon.com slash the wonder school. No, it's hard for me to hold back. I'm like, okay, we'll talk more about it. Right. I know. It's so hard not to get geeky. (laughs) But um, I was just curious. You were talking about how you can eat any pine nut. And um, what I've always heard is that all the pines in the east, the nuts are really too small to be able to harvest easily. Is that true? I think so. I mean, I never really tried out east because it wasn't really something that I was hearing like pine nuts but I, you can eat them mm-hmm. it's just you know the, the energy output it takes to like extract them out of the cones and like exactly like, crack them and all that like is maybe not worth right the, but you could if you really wanted to and they probably taste good so right yeah i say it's like a cost benefit analysis that you have to do to decide whether it's worth it or not. So that totally makes sense to me. So when you're harvesting pine nuts, is it, you were saying that you found these nuts all over the ground. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so is that the way you harvest them? You just wait till they fall on the ground and do you have to remove them at all from the pine cone or they just fall out on their own? Uh, They, well, it depends on the part of the season that you, come and harvest so this year I actually went out twice in early September when I went out it was more like mid-September it really depends um on the year but in mid-September a lot of the nuts are still in the cones and the cone pinion pine cones in particular like they just they like they're kind of a small cone and then they flare out like the tips of the cones start to flare out 
-hmm. and the pineapple just like start to drop out of the cones and then mm -hmm. as the season goes on they open up more and more and um and warmth makes them open faster so like some people will harvest a bunch of cones and then put them in a burlap sack and then put them by a fire and they'll open up more and you can kind of like throw that sack around and it'll like make the nuts come out into the sack and then um and then you can like sort through the cones and maybe like a couple nuts are still in them and they're not hard to get out at all like with a butter knife or your fingers you'll get pretty sappy <laughs> but <laughs> wow that's that's really amazing. I'm going to have to check it out for sure. I would love to see that. Also, uh, you can just harvest right off the ground too. Nice. And, or you can whack a tree. Oh, really? Fall out. And that's like, people are like, oh, you don't want to hurt the pine tree. But like, that's how people have traditionally done it. And it maybe makes the tree tougher, like thrive more. I don't know. That's what I've heard. Like, that it actually is good for the tree to be whacked a little bit. So. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow, cool. What do you harvest the resin at all or do anything with the resin? Yeah, I've made salve from the resin and uh, yeah, like, and you can just, the cones have so much resin on them. I mean, it's pretty easy to like scrape off resin right off the cones. And I've done a thing too before that my friend um, Perry Lee showed me where I took green cones that are super sap covered like in the spring and I stuck them in a sugar with a little water and then like the sugar like pulled the resin out into the sugar and it became this like syrup and it was so good. <laughs> oh, that sounds so good. Wow, that's so cool. So for listeners who don't know, what is pine salve good for? Man, pine salve is a great, uh, and really any pine, you know, but they all have different smells and like depending on where you are, I suppose, uh, use what's there. But it's a great, it's great for like wounds and cuts and um, like it can seal, you can kind of like put it on a cut too that you want to kind of protect and um i think that's like the biggest thing that i think of is like a topical like wound care and do you use it i mean i know i, I use like fur and spruce more for like cough stuff but mm -hmm. I, I feel like pine the sap in particular too may is kind of good for that as well oh wow i haven't tried that mm -hmm. i feel like i have maybe thrown in some needles at one point but I haven't tried that with the sap. Expectorant, like tinctured or something. Right. Like, yeah. I'll definitely have to try that. Ooh, I love it. I could just go on and on. <laughs> so I'm sure I could you. She wanted to, and as a food, mm -hmm. but I had the gum, pine gum thing, and it's like intense. But yeah. Yeah, that resin is so strong. And so many different things that you can do with it. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to, to not talk a whole bunch about it. But I will definitely post a link in the blog. So if you want to find out more about Kelly and find her podcast and her website, that will all be listed on my blog, thewanderschool.com. 
and along with her plant profile on pinion pine. So I'll be sure to post that along with a link to United Plant Savers because I always promote them and what they do. Such an amazing place and I'm totally in awe that you got to do some learning there. Um, love that place. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then also if you want to give me a link to Signal Fire, I'll, I'll post a link to them as well. Because that sounds like really good stuff. So Kelly is going to also give us a surprise recipe for the pine nuts. And that'll be posted on the blog as well. But you, we were talking before we started recording about just the simple way that you prepare them by themselves. So can you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, uh, often I just eat them um, right, like exactly how they are. Like you can pick it off the ground, crack it, crack the shell with your teeth, and then you, you know, the sh you take the shell off and you can eat the nut right then. But um, roasting them is like a way to like increase, just like enrich the flavor of the pine nuts. And then um, one way I was shown recently that I had never done before is to kind of like cook them in salt water, like like in a cast iron. That was really cool to, to taste what they look like. So you cook them in salt water and once the salt water, the water evaporates, it kind of like infuses in the shells, uh, infuses into the, through the shell into the, the nut meat inside and it really is so good. And, um, and then when you're cracking them with your teeth and eating them, like the nuts inside are like roasted and then roasted like in the salt water. And that's, the, yeah, that's a really great way. We just would do a whole batch of them and then be like, okay, we got this like awesome, like salty snack for the next day. Yeah. Sounds amazing. And so I guess you don't have to worry too much about um, sustainability when you're harvesting them because it's a seed <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. not really hurting the tree at all to harvest them and you can plant them you can uh, collect seeds and then replant them in other places i mean people traditionally did that mm. and stands in the west that are really far away from other stands and there's like somehow there's evidence that like people planted those and so i think just continuing to plant them especially since there's the um pine bark beetle that's been like decimating a lot of pines in the west mm. global temperatures in the trees like in especially further in the southwest uh, new mexico and arizona like you'll find like huge areas where all the pinion pines have died and it's because they just like it's been droughty and really and the temperature is rising and they just haven't had enough time to catch up and the pine bark beetle like feeds on the wheat trees so i think it's I think they're so abundant in some ways and like you can't harm them, but I think that, act, that like trying to plant them is also really a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. I just came up with this new question for guests that I'm kind of excited about. And that is, if you would like to, will you share a special foraging adventure? I was thinking of like, something from out west but now i'm thinking about um some experience i used to have out east actually 
When I lived in at the Asheville area, I lived at this farm in Barnardsville and a lot of us just outside of Asheville, a lot of us would like go foraging together. And it was so fun and like exciting and and this is probably something people who live in the north in, in Asheville like do and like it's like a thing, you know, mm-hmm. to go go get June berries and out west we call them they call them Saskatoon berries. It's like the same mm-hmm. same plant pretty much. Mm-hmm. Here they're wild or more in the Pacific Northwest. They're super wild everywhere. But I remember uh, harvesting them in North Carolina and they're mostly planted there, like at least mm-hmm. in the if I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there's up high a little bit, but remember one time going with my friend Paul that we like, maybe, I don't know if this is like ethical or not actually, but <laughs> everyone wants to get those June berries, but we like right. years ago. So now maybe I would do it differently, but we tied a sheet to the tree and one person held two ends of the sheet and another person got in the tree and shook them down, you know, and we yeah. like got so many June berries and all the ripe ones fell. And, uh, we got like 15 gallons of June berries. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> how did we get this many in such a short time? It's uh, amazing. And such a good way to do that. You know, I always think about it like when I'm harvesting, um, mulberries, that's definitely a way that I do it. We had a woman, though, walk up to us. It was at the grocery store. I mean, my dad's a horticulturalist. He would plant that tree as an ornamental. He never thought about harvesting it, you know. This woman came up to me, up to us. She was like, you're going to take them all, like like other people. like harvest them. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's like the tragedy of the commons thing. Like, right. It's like an efficient way to gather. But a lot of people like to come to that parking lot and get them. So, yeah. I thought about it after that, like, you know, we only did it to a few trees and there were still like other trees that had lots of berries, but I don't know, like she's right too. So yeah, we just need to plant more June berries everywhere. So that's right. I'm pretty sure I know exactly where you're talking about and I've harvested there too. But um, yeah, so another common name for June berries is service berries mm-hmm. and God, I wish we could talk so much more on that too, like the ethnobotany of service berry and it's just so cool and the legends about it. I love it, but not today, <laughs> but that's a great story. Thanks. And I, I think it is really important because it also reminds us that foraging used to be a group activity and it, was hard to make it work without it being a group activity without it being something that would happen in community because it really foraging was depended on for food and so it took the community to go out and to harvest together and to process together or else it would take too long for everyone to be able to consume it and you'd put out more calories than you would get back so Hunting to think about sometimes harvesting certain things by yourself, you know. Right. Crazy. I was thinking too just now about I did what the wild rice harvest one time in Minnesota. Oh, man. You can't do that by yourself. You have to have someone else at least. It's really hard anyway to do it by yourself. Right. You know, as an example, and like processing it is so much easier in a group. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely is, and. 
like looking back, I think some of my best, probably most or all my best foraging memories are of when I was foraging with other people. So it's really memorable and it's great to share that with others so that they can learn how to do it and empower themselves as well. And then they can teach others. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty incredible. So I definitely want to have you back on because I feel like there's a hundred more things that we could talk about, but I'm going to try and close it up. So before we do that, is there anything else that you want to add that you think is important for people to know about what you're doing or about foraging in general? So let's see, you can find pretty much everything I'm doing on my website. It's of and com, and uh, I'll give you the link to that. And also if you go to groundshotsproject.com, you'll go to the same place. And so on that website is like a place where you can read all the free ethnobotanical plant profiles that I've released tonight. I'm working on a bunch of them right now and I haven't released one since a new one since last winter, but I have probably like 12, 10 to 12 on there. I can't remember exactly how many, but um, those are free and I've been updating them too, actually, the more I'm learning. And, um, and then on there also is, uh, the podcast like page where you can see all the guests that have been on the ground shots podcast. And, um, but you can also find the podcast, like anywhere you download your podcasts, you just look up ground shots podcast. And, uh, also on there is like a tiny little herb shop store that I open up every now and then. Um, when I feel like I have a stockpile of medicines I'd like to share. So, and let's see, I guess I'm on Instagram and I do, I share on there a bit about plants and it's the handle is at goldenberries actually. So, and other than that, um, that's pretty much where you can find my main stuff. And I don't know exactly what else I would want to share about foraging other than like, I know for me, what I'm always being challenged by what I think I know about something. And, and, and I think traveling into different landscapes and environments and like ecologies, I realize like, uh, there's more, there's more nuance there than I realize. So I'm just like staying open to like learning and, um, and seeing things in different ways and like, uh, you know, not necessarily getting stuck in like thinking one way about something. And when it comes to the ethics piece too that we chatted about, I think like for me, it's been important to stay open to like hearing the conversations about like how to be cautious, but also hearing the conversations about how um, we should harvest more too at the same time. And like, and navigating that, I think openness feels important to me, you know, and everyone has a different way they want to approach that that's great thanks and you also have a patreon account right right <laughs> i'm so bad <laughs> but yeah i've had that for a few years and it's been the biggest way that i've been able to continue like what i'm doing and i, I don't think i mean it's not like 100 percent supporting the project at all but it's definitely like pushing it forward 
Mm -hmm. so yeah the patreon is patreon.com slash of such and salt and i'm pretty i have like a backlog of stuff on there too so it's so it's pretty cool yeah that's so great so if you like what kelly is doing and you want to support her you can do it on patreon as well and you know i've been saying that it's hard for those of you who listen to understand everything that goes into this like the research and the podcast itself, just taking the time and doing the editing and doing the posting and getting it out to folks. There's a lot that goes into it. And we take time to do that when we could be doing other money making work. So if you want to support us to do it, then it will make sure that those things keep happening and we can bring, keep bringing podcasts to you. So please support and I will post all of these links on my website, thewonderschool.com. And if you like what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Please leave comments for me and for Kelly. And please support the work on patreon.com slash thewonderschool. Thanks so much, Kelly, for being here. I really appreciate it. Awesome to chat with you. Yeah, you too. And definitely I will have you back and we can talk about more fun foraging stories. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. Don't forget to check the show notes for all of the links from today's episode. Thanks so much to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. I love hearing from all of you, so please leave me your comments. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast and share with folks you know. You can keep learning and following my adventures on thewanderschool.com and the Wanderschool Facebook and Instagram pages. Happy wandering, foraging, and wildcrafting. Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. Here to tell you that medicine Don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground The medicine we need grows all